chapter four of colonial folkways by charles mclean andrews this librivox recording is in the public domain habiliments and habit in matters of dress as well as in those of house-building and furnishing the eighteenth century was an era of greatly increased expenditure and costly display of tasteful luxuries and elaborate adornment which not only involved the wealthier classes in extravagance beyond their resources but also ended far too often in heavy indebtedness and even in bankruptcy henry vassal of cambridge and william byrd the third of virginia are examples of men who lived beyond their means and became in the end financially embarrassed the years from seventeen forty to seventeen sixty five represent in the history of this country the highest point reached in richness of costume variety of colour peculiarities of decoration and excess of frills and furbelows on the part of both sexes the richer classes affected no republican simplicity in the days before the revolution and while their standards did not prevail beyond town and tidewater there were few who did not feel in some way for good or for ill this increasing complexity of the conditions of colonial life to deal systematically with the subject of dress in colonial times we should trace its changes from the beginning study the various forms it assumed according to the needs of climate and environment and describe the clothing worn by all classes from the negro to the governor and by all members of the family from the infant to the octogenarian but a less formal account of colonial clothing will suffice to give one a fairly complete idea of what our ancestors wore as they went about their daily occupations and what they put on for such special occasions as weddings funerals assemblies and social entertainments it is also interesting to note the peculiar garb of such men as ministers judges sea captains and soldiers for the judge on the bench wore his robe of scarlet the lawyer his suit of black velvet and officials in office and representatives in the assembly found the habiliment suited to the occasion the royal governors were often gloriously bedecked their counsellors bewigged and befrilled and masons in procession to their lodges wore their clothes as one observer put it these however were not the everyday costumes of our forefathers the majority of the colonists except negroes and indentured servants wore clothing which was relatively heavy and coarse throughout new england and to a lesser extent elsewhere men women and children wore homespun with linen shirts toe-cloth skirts and breeches and woolen stockings when they bought materials they selected heavy stuffs such as fustian kersey sagathy shalloon duffel drugget and serge by the middle of the century however farmers of the better class were wearing a finer quality of shop goods such as camblet alamode calamanco and blue broadcloth perhaps the most widely used imported cloth was ozenbrig a tough coarse linen woven in osnabruck westphalia which they made up into nearly everything from breeches and entire suits to sheets table covers and carpet-bags the village parson wore broadcloth when performing the duties of his office and two suits of this material every six years was a fair average for every day he wore the homespun of his parishioners buckskin and lambskin breeches were common and deerskin of which much of the clothing of our early ancestors was made was later used for coats by those who were exposed to wind and weather stockings which generally came over the knee were blue black or gray and might be of worsted cotton or cloth 
shoes often of the coarsest kind double-soled and made of cowhide were made either at home or by village shoemakers who were also cobblers or after the middle of the century at such towns as lynn a great many of the farming people however went barefoot in summer the new englander usually possessed three suits of clothes the durable and practical suit which he wore for working a second vest which he put on for going to market or for doing errands in town and his best which he reserved for the sabbath day and preserved with the utmost care in both town and country clothing was made at home by the women and help or was cut out after the local fashion by the village tailor or seamstress who brought shears and goose with them to the house while the family provided material thread and board suits rarely fitted the wearer alterations were common and the same cloth was used for one member of the family after another until it was completely worn out patching and turning were evidences of thrift and economy apprentices indentured servants and negroes in the north dressed in much the same way as did their betters but in clothes of poorer quality and cut often made over from the discarded garments of their masters in the south what were called plains were imported in large quantities for the negroes those in the house wearing blue jacket and breeches and those in the field generally white frequently the negroes worked with almost nothing on and josiah quincy narrates how he was rowed over hobcaw ferry in south carolina by six negroes four of whom had nothing on but their kind of breeches scarce sufficient for covering when a servant or a negro ran away he put on everything that he had or could steal and such a fugitive must have been a grotesque sight one runaway servant is described as wearing a grey rabbit-skin hat with a clasp to it a periwig of bright brown hair a close serge coat breeches of brownish colour worsted stockings and wooden-heeled shoes one apprentice ran away wearing an old brown drugget coat and a pair of leather breeches and carrying in addition two ozenbrig shirts and two pairs of trousers of the same material an escaped negro was advertised as dressed in shirt jacket and breeches woolen stockings old shoes and an old hat and wearing a silver jewel in one of his ears earrings or bobs in one or both ears were frequent negro adornments the steady advance toward more ornate and picturesque dress which began to be evident in colonial life was due to closer contact with the west indies and the old world the puritans had begun as early as sixteen seventy five to protest against the follies of dress roger wolcott of connecticut in his memoir written in seventeen fifty nine speaks with regret of early times in the colony and bewails the loss of the simplicity and honesty which the people had when he was a boy toward the end of the seventeenth century he says their buildings were good to what they had been but mean to what they are now their dress and diet mean and coarse to what it is now and their regard for the sabbath and reverence for the magistrates far greater than in his day to the quaker also the growing worldliness of the times was a cause of depression and lament peckover writing of his travels in seventeen forty two though proud that the quakers in the neighbourhood of annapolis were accounted pretty topping people in the world nevertheless regretted that they took so much liberty in launching into finery and believed that some of the children went in apparel much finer and more untruth-like than most i ever saw in england the richer planters and merchants not only wore foreign fabrics but deliberately copied foreign fashions edis writing from annapolis in seventeen seventy one was of the opinion that a new fashion was adopted in america even earlier than in england and he saw very little difference in the manner of a wealthy colonist and a wealthy briton a thousand and one articles from the great manufacturing towns of england 
london bristol birmingham sheffield nottingham liverpool manchester torrington and other centres were brought in almost every ship that set sail for america scarcely a letter went from a virginia planter or a boston new york or philadelphia merchant which did not contain a personal order for articles of clothing for himself or his family and scarcely a captain sailed for england who did not carry commissions of one kind or another the very names of the fabrics which the colonists bought show the extent of this early trade holland lawn linen duck and blankets german serge osnaburg linen mecklenburg silk Barcelona silk handkerchiefs flanders thread spanish poplin russian lawn and sheeting hungarian stuff romal or bombay handkerchiefs scottish tartans and cloths and irish linen colonel thomas jones in seventeen twenty six sent in one order for four pairs of stag breeches one fine geneva serge suit one fine cloth suit lined with scarlet one fine drab cloth coat and breeches one gray cloth suit a drugget coat and breeches a frieze coat and several pairs of calamanco breeches and cloth breeches with silver holes william beverley at different times ordered a plain suit of very fine cloth a summer suit of some other stuff than silk with stocks to match a winter riding suit a suit of superfine unmixed broadcloth a pair of riding breeches with silk stockings a great riding coat three holland waistcoats with pockets round-toed pumps a pair of half-jack boots a beaver hat without stiffening a light-coloured bobwig knit hose to wear under others and many pairs of kid and buckskin gloves later he sent back the hose damnified in the voyage to be dyed black and another pair that were too large in the calf i having but a slender body as you know by my measure he also found fault with the boots remarking i am but slender and my leg is not short for his wife beverly ordered a suit of lute string appropriate for a woman of forty years a whalebone coat a hoop coat a sarsenet quilted coat of any colour but yellow white tabby stays a suit of dressed night clothes or a mob ruffles and handkerchief pairs of calamanco shoes flowered stuff damask shoes and silk shoes with silk heels coloured kid gloves and mittens straw hats thread worsted and pearl-coloured silk hose padwasoy ribbons and crewels for embroidering suit patterns for his daughter he wished a whole holland frock a plain lute-string coat a genteel suit of flowered silk cloth or whatever is fashionable a quilted petticoat a cheap plain riding habit a head-dress but if head-dresses were no longer fashionable then a mob-cap with ribbons for other children he wanted calamanco or silk shoes in considerable variety sometimes ordering fine thin black calf skins or skins of white leather to be made up into children's shoes on the plantation hats with silver laces coloured hose and coloured gloves even members of the fair sex tried their own hand at foreign purchase for we are told that sarah bullfinch of boston sent five pounds sterling in silver and one pound seventeen shillings in pennies to pay for purchases in london by a captain who was to buy the goods himself or to send the order to some london merchant such an account of purchases could easily be extended but enough has been said to show the general character of the orders and the dependence of the colonial planter and his family on the captain or the english merchant for fit style and colour the suits which were made as a rule in london by a special tailor or dressmaker who had the measures could never be tried on or fitted beforehand nor could their suitability in the matter of colour and style be determined with any degree of satisfaction the english correspondents in their letters interspersed their comments on trade with frequent suggestions regarding dress and fashions and one remark for example that the french heads are little war mostly english the hoops very small upper 
petticoats of but four yards the gowns unlined these old country correspondents and the obliging captains must at times have indulged in some puzzling shopping expeditions in london orders for a hat genteel but not very gay and for hats and shoes for children of certain ages but with the material and shape unspecified would call for the exercise of considerable discretion on a man's part and one is not surprised that complaints usually followed the receipt of the goods in america stockings were said to be too large boots too small hats too stiff or too soft or wrongly trimmed leather rotten and quality colours and patterns different from what was wanted only to those who frequented the colonial stores where pattern books sent from england were to be found was satisfaction guaranteed goods were often damaged on the voyage and beverly once wrote goods received last spring damnified and to cap the climax have filled my house with cockroaches the colours worn by the men were often varied and bright Kyler of new york ordered a suit of superfine scarlet plush with shalloon and all trimmings a coat and vest of light blue hair plush with all trimmings and fine shalloon suitable for each one merchant wanted a claret-coloured duffel another a gay broadcloth coat vest and breeches and still another two pieces of coloured gingham for a summer suit all clothes even those which were fairly simple and worn by people of moderate means were adorned with buttons made of brass and other metals pearl or cloth covered in addition to damask and silk stuffs the women wore calico and gingham printed in checks patterns and figures dots shells or diamonds which on one occasion stephen collins complained were too large and flaunting to suit the philadelphia market sometimes a pattern was stamped on the cloth in london and was worked with crewel or floss in the colonies women's hats were made of silk or straw their hoods of velvet or silk and their stockings of silk thread cotton worsted and even plush shoes were often very elaborate with uppers of silk or damask and those for girls were made of leather calfskin kid or morocco with silver laces and heels of wood covered with silk gloves which were worn from infancy to old age partly for reasons of fashion and partly to preserve the whiteness of the skin were sometimes imported and sometimes made by the local tailor who like the blacksmith was a craftsman of many accomplishments as for minor adornments the ladies carried fans and wore girdles with buckles but as a rule they possessed little jewellery except necklaces and a variety of finger rings either of plain gold or set with diamonds or rubies and an occasional thumb ring the men also wore rings commonly bearing a seal of carnelian cut with the wearer's arms or some other device many of the mourning rings were realistically made with death's heads as can be seen from the advertisements of the jewellers the wearing of jewellery became much more common after seventeen fifty earrings appeared and even knee-buckles and shoe-buckles tended to become very ornate underwear and lingerie in the modern sense were almost unknown and though nightgowns are mentioned it is uncertain whether they were designed for sleeping purposes or as is more likely for dressing-gowns or my lady's toilet for outside wear for the men there were great coats and for the women coats and mantillas often scarlet and blue and for children older folk and soldiers there were splatterdashes a legging made of black glazed linen and reaching to the knee to protect the stockings men wore oilcloth capes when travelling in the rain and the women put on a protective petticoat sometimes called a weather skirt and wore clogs or patterns against the mud umbrellas are mentioned early in the century but they were probably only carriage tops awnings or sunshades parasols were used by a few but sunbonnets calashes were customary on sunny days wigs were worn by men of all ranks even by servants and wig and peruke makers were to be found in all the large towns wig blocks frequently appear among the invoices and before the queue came in many of the fashionable folk used bags for the hair 
lasts for making shoes liquid blacking and shoe brushes as well as hair brushes were usually imported in travelling men carried clean shirts waistcoats and caps and most interesting of all clean sheets but only occasionally clean stockings and handkerchiefs soap was frequently included in invoices much of it made in new england all southern plantations had soap houses with large copper vessels and other utensils in which soap was made for laundry purposes wash balls were imported possibly for domestic use but they were also an important part of the barber's outfit men had their own razors and hones and shaved themselves but those of the richer classes either went to the barber at so much a quarter or had the barber come to their houses of indoor bathing it is difficult to find any trace there were bathing pools on some of the southern plantations and swimming holes abounded then as now but probably bathtubs were entirely unknown and washing was as far as the colonists ablutions went the toothbrush had not yet been invented but tooth washes and tooth powders were in use as early as seventeen eighteen we read for instance of the essence of pearl guaranteed to do everything for the teeth of the dentium conservator and of another preparation of which the name is not given but which was to be rubbed on with a cloth once a day with the injunction however that if you preserve their beauty use it only twice a week salt and water was the commonest dentifrice that these prophylactics were not very successful is evident from the prevalent toothache and decay which necessitated frequent pulling and an early resort to false teeth there were many individuals in the colonies who made such teeth and fastened them in though dentistry was as yet hardly a vocation by itself the apothecaries the doctors and even the barbers pulled teeth and some of them posed as dentists the goldsmiths advertised false teeth for sale spectacles or spectacles as one writer spells them were ordinarily used when necessary and ear trumpets were occasionally resorted to by the deaf interesting and picturesque as are these manifold details of household equipment and personal use in the old colonial days it is the colour and energy of the daily life of the people of that time which make a deeper appeal to the reader of the twentieth century among the poorer colonists who composed nine-tenths of the colonial population life was a humdrum round of activities on the farm and in the shop in the houses of the rich women concerned themselves with their household duties dress and embroidery of all kinds in some instances they managed the estate engaged in business and even took part in politics in the towns many of the retail stores were conducted by women ruth richardson of talbot county maryland carried on her husband's affairs after his death and martha custis before her marriage with george washington continued the correspondence and administered the plantation of her first cousin who died in seventeen fifty seven madam smith wife of the second landgrave was another famous manager in seventeen thirty two mrs andrew galbraith of donegal pennsylvania took part in her husband's political campaign mounted her favorite mare nelly and with a spur at her heel and her red cloak flying in the wind scoured the country from one end to the other needless to say andrew was elected colonial marriages took place at even so early an age as fourteen and the number of men and women who were married two three and four times was large instances of a thrice widower marrying a twice or thrice widow are not uncommon girls thus became the mothers of children before they were out of their teens sarah hext married dr john rutledge when she was fourteen and was the mother of seven children before she was twenty-five ursula bird who married robert beverley had a son and died before she was seventeen sarah breck was only sixteen or seventeen when she married dr benjamin gott sarah pierpont was seventeen when she married jonathan edwards and hannah gardiner was of the same age when she married dr mcsparren 
large families even of twenty-six children of a single mother are recorded but infant mortality was very great john coleman and judith hobby had fourteen children of whom five died at birth and only four grew up and married one to the well-known dr thomas bullfinch of boston though sarah hext lived to be sixty-eight many mothers died early and often in childbirth an instance is given of a burying-ground near bath maine in which there were the graves of ten married women eight of whom had died between the ages of twenty-two and thirty probably as the result of large families and overwork second marriages were the rule though probably few were as sudden as that of the sandemanian isaac winslow who proposed to ben davis's daughter on the eve of the day he buried his wife and married her within a week the marriage ceremony generally took place at home instead of in the church and in many of the colonies was followed by a bountiful supper cards and dancing there were often bridesmaids diamond wedding rings and elaborate hospitality in new england the festivities lasted two or three days and a visitor stayed a week in the south one proposing to marry had to give bond that the marriage would not result in a charge on the community and usually the bands were read three times in meeting and a license was obtained and recorded in virginia where the county clerks granted licenses children under age could not marry without the consent of their parents and indentured servants could not marry during their servitude in connecticut the bans were published but once and protests against a marriage were affixed to the signpost or the church door blanks for licenses were distributed by the governor and could be obtained of the local authorities a curious custom was that of bundling sometimes also called tarrying though the practices seem to have been different which burnaby describes as putting the courting couple into bed with garments on to prevent scandal when if the parties agree it is all very well the bands are published and the two are married without delay another curious custom which prevailed from new england to south carolina made the second husband responsible for the deaths of the first unless the bride were married in her chemise in the king's highway in one instance the lady stood in a closet and extended her hand through the door and in another well authenticated both chemise and closet were dispensed with divorces were rare the anglican church refused to sanction them and the crown forbade colonial legislatures to pass bills granting them the matter was therefore left to the courts as new england courts refused to break a will so as a rule they refused to grant a divorce though there are a number of exceptions for divorces were allowed in both massachusetts and connecticut in the case of unhappy marriages separation by mutual agreement was occasionally resorted to sometimes the lady ran away and indeed advertisements for runaway wives seem almost as common in southern newspapers as those for runaway servants marriages between colonial women and english officials missionaries of the society for the propagation of the gospel and even occasional visitors from abroad were not infrequent sir william draper knight of the bath who made an american tour in seventeen seventy wooed and won during his journey susanna daughter of oliver de lancy of new york family life in the colonies was full of affection though the expression of feeling was usually restrained and formal colonel thomas jones for example addressed his fiancee elizabeth cock a widow and a niece of mark catesby the naturalist as madam or dearest madam during their engagement though after their marriage his greeting was my dearest life one of his wife's letters the gallant and devoted jones read over about twenty times and his correspondence with her contained such gems of solicitude as this if my heart could take a flight from the imprisonment of a worthless carcass little better than dirt it should whisper to you in your slumbers the truth of my soul that you may be agreeably surprised with the lustre of celestial vision surrounding you on every side with presence of joy and comfort in one continued sleep till the sparkling rays of the sun put you in mind with him to bless the earth with your presence 
richard stockton writing to his wife amelia from london in seventeen sixty said that he had been running to every american coffee-house to see if any vessels are bound to your side of the water and added i see not an obliging tender wife but the image of my dear amelia is full in view i see not a haughty imperious and ignorant dame but i rejoice that the partner of my life is so much the opposite affection for children was not often openly expressed in new england though ample testimony shows that it existed children were repressed in mind as well as in body and their natural and youthful spirits were generally ascribed to original sin toward their parents their attitude was decorous in the extreme deborah jeffreys addressed her father as honoured sir and wrote i was much pleased to hear my letters were agreeable to you and mamma i shall always do my endeavour to please such kind and tender parents education and punishment in colonial days went frequently hand in hand and servants and children were often treated with extreme harshness whipping was the universal remedy for misbehaviour and was resorted to on all occasions in the case of children in their early years of servants throughout the period of their indenture and of niggers during their whole lives yet one cannot read colonel jones's reference to these two dear pledges of your love in a letter to his wife or william beverley's lament for his son who died as he thought for lack of care when away from home without realizing the depth of parental love in colonial times sickness death and the frailties of human life were perennial subjects of conversation and correspondence and few family letters of those days were free from allusions to them from infancy to old age death took ample toll so great was the colonial disregard for the laws of sanitation so little the attention paid to drainage and disinfection the human system was dosed and physicked until it could hold no more governor ogle of maryland said of his predecessor that he took more physic than any one he had ever known in his life and maria bird was accustomed to swallow an abundance of finite whatever that was every home had its medicine chest either made up in england at apothecary's hall or supplied by some nearby druggist who furnished the necessary chemical and galenical medicines joseph cuthbert of savannah for example fitted up boxes of medicines with directions for use on the plantation medicinal herbs were dispensed by indian doctors and popular concoctions were taken in large doses by credulous people madam smith wrote that the juice of the jerusalem oak had cured all the negro children on the plantation of a distemper and that several negroes had drunk as much as half a pint of it at a time nostrums quack remedies and proprietary medicines made by a secret formula were very common we read of wards anodyne pearls to be worn as necklaces by children at teething time of the bezoar stone for curing serpent bites of seneca snake root bateman's pectoral drops turlington's original balsam duffy's elixir counters kent's powder anderson's pills forehaven's chemical tincture and other specifics to be given in allopathic doses jesuits bark salt wormwood sweet basil iron treacle calomel flos unguent sal volatile salts and rhubarb were on the family lists and here and there were resorts where people drank medicinal waters or used them for bathing the prominent place which death occupied in colonial thought and experience gave to funerals the character of social functions and public events they were objects of general interest and were usually attended by crowds of people children were allowed to attend often as pallbearers that they might be impressed with the significance of death as the inevitable end of a life of trial and probation everywhere before the reaction of the sixties funerals were occasions of expense and extravagant display it was unusual to find robert hume of charleston declaring in his will that his funeral should not cost over ten pounds that the coffin should be plain and not covered by a pall and that none of his relatives should wear mourning 
occasionally a colonist expressed the wish to be buried without pomp or funeral sermon but such a preference was rare the giving of gloves rings and scarves was provided for in nearly every will and it is easy to believe the report that some of the clergy accumulated these articles by the hundred drinking even to the point of intoxication at funerals became such a scandal that ministers in new england thundered at the practice from the pulpit and edmund watts in virginia was moved to declare in his will that no strong drink be provided or spent when he was buried but the custom was too deep-seated to be easily eradicated the dead were buried in the burying ground or churchyard though private burial places were customary on the plantations and in many parts of northern new york and new england at annapolis a lot in the churchyard was leased at a nominal rent but interment within the church was allowed for a consideration which was possible only to people of wealth and which went to the rector a potter's field seems hardly to have been known in colonial times for we are told that the poorer classes and negroes in baltimore buried their deceased relations and acquaintances in several streets and alleys of the town and that not until seventeen ninety two was a special section set apart for their use a suicide was interred at a crossroads and a stake was driven through the body usually except among the quakers stones table monuments and headpieces were erected over the dead and often bore elaborate and curious inscriptions and carvings more or less crude the commonest materials freestone cyanite and slate were usually quarried in the colonies though marble was always brought from england martha custis procured in london a marble tomb for her first husband and william beverley directed that a stone of this material be imported for his father's grave vaults were constructed by those who could afford them and were widely used in the north in the eighteenth century End of chapter four